Okay. Can everybody see that? Give me a thumbs up if you can see the screen. Is that, see it there? Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So real faith in difficult times. Uh, the book of James. Uh, just by way of review, uh, some of you may be coming over from David's class. And, uh, so jumping into James, uh, may, may feel a little bit, uh, a little bit out of context. So, so really what, what we're, what we're talking about in the book of James is, uh, his theme is, really answering the question, what is real faith? And this book is incredibly relevant for our time, our, our, our days and times that we live in today uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, we live in what uh, sociologists call a post-Christian uh, America, which means we live at a time of unprecedented Bible ignorance, of um, historic uh, rejection of Christianity, and um and and not just uh you know not we're not just talking about you know christian judeo christian values although that's true too but but actual christianity and um and and you know in the south where we live we we still feel the residuals of living in the bible belt and so there's a lot of people right here in hood county that would say jesus is important and they would even go to church and and claim christianity as their faith and yet what we're going to see in the book of James is that uh, real faith is not just a profession. Real faith is lived out in every realm of life. Uh, real faith is a living faith, we might say. And that's really what James wants to talk to his uh, readers about. You'll remember he writes, according to chapter 1, verse 1, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And, of course, those refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. What he's saying is the very the very first converts to Christianity were Jewish. They lived in Jerusalem as they heard the message of Jesus and his disciples, and they trusted Christ. Uh, th- those early converts were mostly Jewish people. And you'll remember uh, James was probably the very first New Testament book that was written, written in the 40s. Uh, 40s AD, and um, as the Jewish establishment, the Pharisees, the the priests, the rabbis, as they reacted to this new Christianity and to many Jews that were converting to Christianity, they began to persecute that first generation. And in fact, that persecution became difficult enough that they had to leave their town. They had to leave Jerusalem. And as James tells us, they were scattered abroad, mostly to the north and to the west of what we think of as Israel proper today. <laughs> so that's what's going on in, in the time that James picks up his pen and, <clears throat> and writes, excuse me, and writes to these, uh, these brand new Christians in that first century. I'll just finish it to put my hand. Thank you. But it's real faith in, in difficult times. Um, what does your faith look like when things get difficult in life? And so that those are really the two kind of themes that come together <clears throat> that make up the book of James. So we're going to talk today um, about a second question. And uh, we're trying, as James is writing, we recognize that he's, he's trying to address unspoken questions that the 12 tribes dispersed abroad may have had about Christianity. So the question we're going to try to answer today is, um, does your faith lead to godly action? Uh, and, and that's a question that he's trying to help his readers to see 
as a means of demonstrating whether their faith is real or not. So just by way of review, um, the first question that James was sort of showing was, how do we respond to challenges? And if we just look back at chapter one, uh, he talked about how do we respond to trials? How do we respond to lacking wisdom? How do we respond to being humbled? How do we respond to temptation? How do we respond to good things? Do we do we see them as coming from God and are we thankful or do we just look right past them? Uh, he talks about how we respond to relationships with being quick to listen and slow to speak. And then last time we talked about kind of this this second question that we're looking at as well today. Does your faith lead to godly action? And uh, B, are, are you a doer of the word, he would say? And does your does your faith amount to actually doing what God says? Or are you just uh, professing and, and knowing it, but not actually doing it? Uh, we talked about pursuing love of neighbor and personal purity. You'll remember at the very end of chapter one, he he reminds us of what true religion is. It's to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself unstained by the world. And that, that that's the essence of what it means to um, walk with God, that that's true religion, according to James. And uh, that's very helpful to remember why we're here and what our faith should look like. And then uh, in the most recent section that we've looked at, uh, he's talking to us about personal or uh, excuse me, partiality toward others. And this is the section where he talks about, you know, you're gathered for worship and a poor man walks in and a rich man walk in and you uh, you give the rich man special treatment and you sort of um, slight the uh, the poor man and, and uh, mis- mistreat him in terms of uh, the attention that you're giving him and the place where you're allowing him to sit and things like that. So, that's what James is doing. He, he's, he's trying to show us what is real faith. And he's, he's arguing that real faith is a living faith. And that living faith shows up in how we respond to life's challenges. And it also shows up in how we uh, manifest or don't manifest godly actions. And uh, that brings us to the section that we're going to look at today in James chapter 2. Verses 14 through 26, really uh, through the end of chapter 2. So if you'd like to turn over there, if you haven't already done so, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And I'm just going to read this section to you. This is a very difficult section in the Bible. In fact, this is probably one of the places in the Bible that more Christians get stuck in terms of understanding what he actually means uh, you'll you'll recall that uh, the reformer Martin Luther, <clears throat> who is uh, credited with um, really beginning the Protestant Revolution of the 16th the 16th century, um, that Martin Luther, uh, who who rediscovered justification by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, uh, who translated the Bible into German, so many great things that he did, he really really struggled with the Book of James. In fact, uh, he calls it in one of his books an, uh, an epistle of straw. Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, that's not a compliment to the book of James. And, and the reason that, J- that uh, Luther uh, did not like the letter of James and struggle with it so much, I would say, with all due respect to Mr. L- Mr. Luther, he failed to understand it. And uh, for Luther, he was so moved by a, a gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, after decades of living under the bondage of 
Catholic uh, works righteousness. Um, the gospel was so freeing. And, and perhaps because that was such an incredible experience for him, uh, he, he really struggled to understand the proper place for good works, which is what James is going to talk about. So with all that, uh, let's, let's turn our attention now uh, to this last question here. Does our faith produce good works? So follow along with me as I read, starting in chapter, four, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now he's going to prove the point, okay? Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Okay, now there are some challenging, very challenging verses there. So uh, my name's Keith, and I'm going to be your tour guide here. And the first thing I want to do as your tour guide is I want to give you three okay. observations that are going yeah. to help us to interpret this section rightly. Because when you, when you read that verse... Uh, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You go, wait a minute. I've been paying attention to Pastor Terry's Roman series. You know, that doesn't sound right. I thought we're justified by faith alone, right? So how do we understand some of the apparent contradictions uh, right. that James is going to say and what Paul says in Romans? Okay. So how are we going to do that? Um, well, let me give you three observations uh, that are going to help us to unlock the meaning here and, and see how what James says is actually harmonizing with Paul, not contradicting. Okay, so here's <clears throat> here's key number one that unlocked the meaning of the difficult text. <clears throat> the first thing we have to recognize, sorry, uh, is that James and Romans define justification very differently. And this is important to see. James was written in the 40s. Romans was written almost uh, two decades later. And words change meaning over time. Uh, because the Bible was written literally over uh, thousands of years, 
we, we recognize that words may have slightly different meaning because words do change meaning over time. <clears throat> so the way that <clears throat> James is defining justification and the way that Paul is defining justification in Romans is different. So, so looking on the screen there and on your notes, uh, Romans defines justification as God declaring a person not guilty but righteous on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. That's his explanation for justification. It's a legal declaration that a person is not guilty but righteous because of Christ's work. And that is the typical way, the typical definition of justification. However, James, who was writing a lot earlier, when perhaps the word had a little different meaning, or maybe he's just using it in a different sense, for James... Justification means the outward evidence or proof that a person is really righteous. You see the difference there? For Paul, it's a legal declaration. For James, it's outward evidence that proves a person's faith. And if you get those two uh, mixed up, you end up concluding that James is saying something that he really isn't saying. Okay, so that's key number one. Let's look at key number two. James and Romans define the idea of works very differently. Uh, you'll recall that when we uh, went through Romans with uh, Pastor Terry, especially in chapters 3 and 4 and 5, where we're talking about the works of the law, right? That's the, a key phrase, the works of the law, the works of the law. Well, in Romans, Paul is defining the works of the law as the things a person does to try and earn heaven and God's favor on his own. That's what works of the law mean in Romans. It's the things a person tries to do in order to earn heaven, to gain heaven and God's favor on his own. And, of course, Paul says, you know, by the works of the law, no one's going to be justified in his sight, meaning no one can be good enough in terms of doing good works in order to achieve heaven. There, there's just there's just none righteous, right, he says in Romans 3. Well, that's not what James means when he uses the word works. For James, he's not talking about works of the law as a, a way that people might earn their way to God and to heaven. James is defining works as a believer's obedience to the commands of God that naturally flow out of his new life in Christ. So for James, works are the evidence of a person's salvation. They're not the means of a person's salvation, if that makes sense. So again, if you if you mix those up and you read James, you're, you're, you're left probably with conclusions that James did not intend. One final key that unlocks the meaning of this potentially difficult text is to recognize that James and Romans are really attempting to answer two completely different questions in this in this section of their letters. Romans is answering the question, how is a person saved? Right. How does a person come into right relationship with God, have their sins forgiven? Uh, That's what Romans is attempting to answer in, especially in chapters uh, one through five of Romans. Whereas James in chapter two here is answering the question, not how is a person saved, but rather how do we know if a person is really saved or not? Okay, does that make sense? Any questions on that? Okay, well, if you if you keep those three things in mind, hopefully 
we will not misunderstand what James is saying. Okay, so let's jump into the text now. Um, look at what he says here in chapter uh, 2, verse 14. He says, what use is it, brethren, if someone says he has faith and has no works? Can that faith save him? So, so that's that's the premise, right? If you have a faith that does not produce any change in your life, if you say you know Christ, but there's no evidence of that faith through your works, James asks the question, can that kind of faith, the faith that doesn't produce works, can that save a person? And then he gives an example, right? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, right? It's, it's all words. It's all talk. But they don't actually give the person what is necessary for their body. He says, what use is that, right? And following that analogy that, you know, if, if well, look outside, right? It's blowing snow here in Toler. I don't know what's doing in your part of town. If there's someone outside and they're running around in shorts and a T-shirt, and uh, they need a coat. They need warm clothes. And and we stick our heads out our houses and say, be warmed, brother, be warmed, sister, and we slam the door. Well, that does absolutely no good to the person, right? It's useless. And that's what James is saying, is that a faith that is only profession, it's only talk, but doesn't show itself in any sort of good works or change in life, according to James here, he says that faith if it has no works, is dead because it's by itself. So we can say it like this. False faith, in other words, the kind that is by itself and has no works, is dead. It is a dead faith. And um, now, now just think about that for a minute. What If that's true, think of how many people, especially in the south of the states, the Bible Belt. Think about how many Christians today, how many people that would profess Christ today are clinging to a false idea of true Christianity. Uh, you know, we've probably all heard stories like this. Oh, yeah, I walked the aisle when I was I was six. You know, I grew up in church. Uh, I, gave, I gave my heart to Jesus, you know, things like that. And as we get to know them, we recognize that their faith has little to nothing to do with how they live today. And were we to not know of that profession of faith, we would look at them and say, you know, we don't see any difference in life. And, and you know, that's a warning to us, too, that, that we, if we claim the name of Christ, if we say that our faith is real, that faith must demonstrate itself in a transformed life of works that uh, the Bible says God actually prepares them beforehand so that we would walk in them. So what's the point? The point is faith is dead if it is a faith that is by itself and has no evidence of works or godliness in the life of the person. Okay, so that's point number one. Look at the next verse, verse 18. But someone may respond to that. So James is here anticipating some pushback, right? So the person says, yeah, yeah, okay. I I hear what you say, Mr. James, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, right? Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. That's a little bit 
difficult to understand, but basically what he's saying is James is anticipating someone coming up and saying, I get it. I'm happy that you have faith in works, great. I have faith without my works. And and basically the the person, the hypothetical person that James is responding to here is simply saying, great, you have works, I have faith, you know, we can have our differences, right? We can just tolerate each other. And James is saying, no, 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 we have to show our faith by our works. Okay, that that is the point. Now, this is really interesting, too. He comes back and says, you believe that God is one. You do well. This is interesting here because James is describing the fact that there are lots of people who believe, for example, that God is one, meaning that that uh, it's a monotheistic situation, right? We only believe in one God. Uh, there are people that would tell us Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. Uh, there are people who would say, uh, I know the Bible. I've read the Bible. I know the story. I know that, you know, Jesus is God's son and God sent him to the earth as a man and, and that he brought salvation. They, they say that. And, and, and here, here's the pushback to that. James says, you believe that God is one, meaning you, you believe some orthodox things about Christianity. Great. Well, the demons also believe that. And they shudder. And, and that's that's pretty shocking, isn't it? Um, I've heard it said before that demons have better theology than some people do. Because they know what's true. Now, they don't um, they, they don't go along with it. Right. <laughs> you know, they, they reject it. But they know what's true. And, and here's James point. OK. Knowing facts about the Bible and Christianity is not real faith. Agreeing with some true things about God and the Bible and the gospel, well, that's good, but that's not real faith. And this gets to what some authors have described as the problem of easy believism. Have you guys heard that before? Easy believism. And, and what, uh, what that term refers to is when people that would profess Christ have redefined faith as simply intellectually assenting to some facts about the gospel, agreeing with the gospel. They might even say the gospel is important. But here's the thing. They're not actually trusting in Christ and in that gospel message unto salvation. Okay, so I'm going to say this and you tell me if I'm crazy. Okay, not all belief is saving belief. Or we could even say it like this. Not all faith is saving faith. You say, whoa, wait a minute. What does that mean? That's what James is saying here. Just understanding some facts about the gospel, agreeing that they're true, thinking that they're important. Um, that's a kind of faith, right? But that faith is not saving faith. We have to do more than just know facts about the gospel. We have to do more than just agree that they are true. Real faith 
is actually trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Uh, many of you know the uh, uh, the Christian apologist and evangelist Ray Comfort, right? And and I love his analogy of what faith is. Real faith is you're in an airplane, you're at twenty two thousand feet. The airplane, uh, the pilot comes on and says, uh, uh, "This is Captain Smith from the cockpit here. Uh, thank you for flying." Uh, 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 ABC Airlines. Um, we've just lost both of our engines and our wings are falling off and, uh, uh, we're gonna die. We're gonna crash. Uh, but not to worry. Uh, you have, all have parachutes. Uh, you can find those, uh, in the seat back in front of you. Uh, just put them on and jump out of the airplane and y- you'll be okay. And, uh, and Ray Comfort uses this analogy. Listen very closely to describe what real faith is, okay? Real faith is not looking at that parachute and believing that it can save you, right? Knowing that parachutes can save people. Now, uh, real faith is not just knowing what parachutes do, but actually agreeing that it could save you, right? I agree with that. Real faith is not just knowing what parachutes do or believing that it can save you, but what? Real faith means putting on the parachute and jumping out of the airplane. That's faith, right? It, you're, you're putting your faith into action. You're actually trusting that it will do that. And then you, you put your faith in the parachute by putting it on and jumping out the window. That's what faith is. And that's what James is trying to combat is he's saying real faith is not just knowing some things. It's not just a believing some things in terms of agreeing. It's actually leaning on Christ for your salvation, the way that you would actually put on a parachute and jump out the window, should you ever need to do that, okay? So false faith, back to the notes here, is the kind that has no works and thus is useless and it is worthless, right? He goes in verse 19 and says, the demons also believe, meaning they know some facts, they even know that those facts are true, but obviously that those facts of the gospel are not being accepted. They're being rejected. Look at verse 20. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? See, James is making the same argument really as what he was saying in verse 17. If a person is in need of daily food or clothing, and you simply tell them to be warmed and be filled, but you don't actually do anything to help them, James says, well, you're not really helping the person, are you? It's useless. And so he comes back to verse 20 and says the same thing. This is so important, guys, that you get this. Faith in Christ is not an end in itself. Does that make sense? Faith in Christ is not an end in itself. Faith in Christ is a means, we know, to be reconciled to God, but is also a means to be conformed to the image of his Son. And what God wants is not some sort of intellectual assent that just agrees to the gospel. What God wants is a faith that transforms our life and makes us look more like Christ as a means of glorifying God. So real faith is a living faith. Real faith is a faith that transforms. Real faith is a faith that is making you and me look more like Jesus 
every day. And a faith that does not result in transformation is a useless faith. And ultimately, as he says, a false faith, a dead faith. Okay, are you with me? Is that making sense? Real faith is transformative. And and you know this, you know. You go talking to people and, and they got tr- trouble in their marriage and, and, uh, you know, emotional issues and addictions and, 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 um, and you say, Hey, come to Christ, right? Trust Christ. Why should I do that? Uh, well, cause you'll feel better. What are you going to tell them? A, a faith that doesn't transform your life. Who's going to be attracted to that? Right? It's a, it's a useless faith. That's his point. That's his argument. Faith, if it is not resulting in works, is a useless faith. Okay? So that, that's his point there. Let's move on and let's talk now about an example. Now remember, James is writing to a Jewish audience, the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And, uh, of course, the, these guys, they don't have a Bible, right? All they have is uh, maybe a familiarity with some of the Old Testament. Maybe maybe some of them would have partial scrolls or partial copies of the Old Testament. But this is not this is not the time in history where everybody walked around with a Bible. But most Jews knew Abraham uh, because he was the most important patriarch uh, as the one who would receive the Abraham Abrahamic covenant, right? Um, so James here is going to use a, an example from the life of Abraham. And to do this, you have to remember some sequencing in the life of Abraham. OK, so I'll try to help you with that as we uh, as we get to those passages. OK, we are first introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. OK, just remember that that's when we first kind of get to know Abraham is in Genesis chapter 12. And uh, and we'll go from there. OK, so look back at James. And let's pick it up in James chapter 2, verse 21. James is going to give uh, an example here from the life of Abraham. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, the first thing I want you to remember is how is James using that word justified? Okay, talk to me here. How is he using the word justified? That was your cue. Okay, jump in. Talk to me. Proof. Proof. Declared righteous. Okay. So remember, Paul in Romans is using the word justified as being declared righteous. And that's the typical way that justification is understood. That is not what James is doing here. James here is using the word justification to demonstrate the evidence of faith or the proving of faith, as one of you said. Okay, so go back and read verse 21 again with that definition in mind. Was not Abraham our father proved or evidenced his faith by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Okay. Now, now I want I, I want to just help you to to remember. Three different places in the life of Abraham. Okay. When did Abraham become a believer? When did he trust in God and God declared him to be a believer? Do you remember when that was? 
He went to go to a different land. Okay, that's true. That's right. Do you remember what chapter God declares him to be a believer? Chapter 15. That's correct. Okay, so uh, if you want to turn back to Genesis and look with me at these passages, you're welcome to do that. If you'd rather just listen, that's fine, too. But the point is to see, you've got to see the sequence here, okay? The sequence is very important, okay? So follow me on this. In Genesis chapter 12, let's just look there first. Genesis chapter 12, this is where we're first introduced to Abraham, or actually he was just called Abram in that day. His name would later be changed to Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to him, and he tells him, chapter 12, verse 1, go from your country And from your relatives to a land which I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay? That's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. That is the promise that God made to Abram. And you'll see that it includes several different provisions there. Okay? So Abram, in the next verses, he leaves his hometown and he goes to this strange new country that God told him to go to. And if we turn the page, God continues to talk to him and to encourage him and to direct him and meet with him. So turn the page now to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. Genesis 15, verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Now, Abram then responds, how am I going to be a great nation when my wife and I can't have children? And uh, and he talks about, you know, all his all his inheritance going to a, a relative of his because they don't have children of their own. And so Abram, uh, God does something. He takes Abram outside. Look at chapter 15 of Genesis, verse five. So God takes Abram outside. And he says to Abram, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So so what's God doing? He's saying to Abram, what I said back in chapter 12 is really true. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a great family. Your descendants will be as many as the stars of the heavens. Now look at verse 6 now. This is the key verse. Chapter 15, verse 6. Then Abram believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. We say, whoa, what just happened there? Abram trusted God, and God declared him righteous. God declared him to be a believer. This is, the, this is what Paul is going to talk about in Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5 using Abraham as an example of justification by faith alone, meaning a person comes into right relationship with God through faith alone. And that happens here in chapter 15. So Abram becomes a believer in Genesis chapter 15. So whoever said that, you're absolutely right. Now here, now here's the question, okay, without looking ahead at your Bible, what chapter does Abram, uh, does Abraham offer his son Isaac on the altar? What chapter is that? Okay, okay, you can look if you have to, I guess. Okay. 22. What's that? 22. 22. 22. 
And remember that this is this is decades later. Um, you know, we, we think that Isaac is probably, um, you know, like like a upper elementary, maybe even like an early teenager in at this time. And um, so so here's the point. When James says Abraham was justified by his works when he offered up Isaac on the altar. That happens after Abram became a believer in Genesis 15. Do you see that? He offers up Isaac in chapter 22, but he became a believer in chapter 15. And that's so helpful. And James assumes that his audience knows the progression. Abram becomes a believer in chapter 15. He offers Isaac in chapter 22. And that reiterates what James is trying to say that Abraham is demonstrating his belief. He's demonstrating his his faith. He's proving his faith through his works when he offered up Isaac in chapter 22. That wasn't when Abraham became a believer. He became a believer back in chapter 15. Okay, so now look at your notes now. Abram was saved, or we might say declared righteous by God, in Genesis 15, 6, when he believed or trusted in God and his faith was credited as righteousness. And that's Romans 4. Justified in that text means declared righteous by God on the basis of faith alone. That, that's his justification. That's his, that's his being saved, his becoming a believer. But notice, secondly, his faith was tested by God and shown to be real when Abraham obeyed God by offering Isaac. This took place in Genesis 22, seven chapters after he was first saved. His obedience to God was the perfection of his faith. You say, what does that mean? It proved that his profession of faith was real. Does that make sense? (laughs) And, And there, again, James is saying, James is using that word justified, meaning Abraham was shown to actually be righteous because of the obedience and the good works that showed that his faith is living and real. Okay, uh, you can go back to, to James chapter 2 now, okay? You can go back to James. Hopefully that made sense, but the point is to see the progression. Abram becomes a believer in chapter 15. He offers Isaac in 22. In chapter 15, he was justified in terms of his salvation. In chapter 22, he's justified in the sense that his faith is shown to be real through his works. And that's what James wants us to really focus on here, Okay. So look back at verse 20. Now, you're back in chapter 2 now. Back to, back to James, please. If you're not there, back to James chapter 2. Look at verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, the faith was perfected. Now, remember, that little word perfected there, don't, don't trip over that word. It doesn't mean that Abraham was perfect in his life. Uh, it doesn't mean that his faith wasn't real prior to that, perfected has the sense of completing the goal, reaching the goal. Does that make sense? So what he's saying is Abram's faith manifested itself in a changed and transformed life of obedience to God. And as a result, his faith achieved the goal of the faith which is a changed life, which is obedience before God. Faith is supposed to result in obeying God. And that's his point. 
Okay, that's his point. So back to verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Now here, listen, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as, as righteousness. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That doesn't happen in chapter 22 of Genesis when he offers Isaac. That verse is from Genesis 15 when he became a believer. You say, James, why would you put that verse here? That doesn't make any sense to us. Here's what James is trying to do, okay? It, it, it makes sense if you think about it. James is not saying that Abram was became a believer in chapter 22 when he proved his faith by offering Isaac. What he's trying to do is to say, Abraham's offer, or, uh, um, yeah, Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22 proved the reality of what God declared back in Genesis 15. Okay, I'm going to say that again because that might be hard to understand. Okay. James' point is this. When Abraham offered Isaac in obedience to God in chapter 22, that proved the reality of what God declared about Abraham back in Genesis 15, that his faith was a real faith that made him a believer. Okay, In that sense, God is saying the scripture is fulfilled. It showed that that declaration was real. You say, what on earth does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with today? When you and I and other professing Christians demonstrate obedience to God, when we are conformed more to the image of Christ by following his instructions, when we look backward on our life and we say, by God's grace, I'm a different person. By God's grace, God is transforming my life from the inside out. Those realities, those evidences demonstrate that our faith is real. And that's the point. We're supposed to get excited about that. When, when, when we say, I'm living differently because Jesus is working in my heart. Jesus is working in my life. That's the point of faith. And that's why all of this is so relevant to us, that good works prove the reality of true saving faith. And that's what Mr. James is trying so hard to get us to see. Okay. Keith. And, and James adds on here that he was called the friend of God mm. as a true believer. Right? He was called the friend of God. And then, and now, and now, <laughs> hang on to your hat. Here, here's the verse that everybody struggles with. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. This guy, do you see why it is so important to read every verse in your Bible in context? Do you see how important that is? If you just pull verse 24 out of context, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. I had a Mormon try that with me one time. You ever do that? You get two really nice young men in uh, white shirts and ties. They, they bang on your door. You see some some uh, mountain bikes out by your driveway. Not on a day like today, probably. But, you know, you've seen that. And, and they walk up to your door. They bang on the door. And they got little little uh, name tags, you know, Elder Bob, 
Elder Joe, right? And a very nice young man. And they want to talk to you about another, another testament of Jesus Christ called the Book of Mormon. And, and I remember year, many, many, many years ago, we're living back in California and uh, trying to help them, right? They're, they're trying to, you know, evangelize you, so to speak. And I'm sitting out uh, at my parents' house. We have this little uh, rock wall out there, just sitting out on the rock wall talking to these Mormon guys. And, and, and they say, well, no, 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 we're not, we're not saved by faith alone. In fact, the Bible actually says, uh, in James chapter two, verse 24, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Cause, you know, in Mormon theology, they believe that you have to have faith and works in order to be saved. Just like our Catholic friends that would say you have to have faith and works in order to be saved. And, you know, if, if you just pull that verse in James out of context, that's what it seems to say, right? Which is why it's so important that you read the whole paragraph. So you understand that James is not saying justified like Paul uses it in Romans. He's using it as it demonstrates the reality of our faith. And a real faith is one that does manifest itself in good works. Okay? So on your notes there, the crucial link between faith and works, good works are the goal or the purpose of faith, right? Good works don't save us. They don't contribute to our salvation in any way. Good works are the result of our faith or the goal of our faith. Hey, Keith. Yes. It made me think about what Jesus said in Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Yeah, that's exactly it. And actually, you know, Paul believed this too. You know, sometimes people pit James against Paul. You know, James thought this, Paul thought that. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. You know the verse, right? How does that go? James chapter 2, or uh, James. Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 8 through 10. For by grace, fun, somebody knows it. For by grace you are saved through faith. Okay. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone, lest anyone should boast. Right. So, so in terms of becoming a believer, works has no place at all in that. It is faith alone in Christ alone. God does all the work. Right. But don't forget verse ten. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And, and that is the formula, if I can use that word. That is the formula for understanding the relationship between faith and works in the Christian life. Faith alone brings us salvation in Christ alone who does all the work. But we are saved in order to engage in good works that God actually prepared beforehand. Like uh, like Rob said, you know, we are we want to let our light shine in, in such a way that people see our good works and they glorify God. Um, OK, so that that's the link. That's the purpose there is to see that good works are the goal and purpose of faith. So, so don't don't be afraid of works. I think sometimes Christians, especially when they come out of a Catholic background, a Mormon background, they think, oh, works, works are horrible. Works are bad. Works are terrible. You know, and we can have no place for works. And that, that just leads to that, that easy believism that we talked about. No, no. Works are good. Works are godly. Works are commanded. We just have to recognize that they ought to be the result of our salvation, 
not a means of a of achieving our salvation. Look back, look back at the text here. Okay, a person is shown to really be a Christian by what by what they do, not by their mere profession of faith alone. And and that is that is really uh, the point of what James is trying to say here. Now now there's one other little thing he throws in here, verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And we go, who? Right? Who are we talking? We know Abraham. Who's this Rahab person? Well, we don't have time to do this. So just just mark it in your, actually, I guess I put it in your notes there. Joshua chapter two. Remember, Moses dies, right? Moses dies. He gets to see the promised land. He's not allowed to enter. So he dies. Joshua takes over. He's going to lead the people into the promised land. And in order to do that, Joshua, who was a military leader, he sends uh, some spies into the land to spy out the land. And so they come in and, and they meet this lady named Rahab. And, and you need to, you need to read the story. I wish we could read it right now. We don't have time. Rahab says, Hey, we've heard about you. We've heard about the parting of the Red Sea and we've, we've heard about the, the deliverance from the Egyptians. You know, it's like, you know, these guys have made headline news all the way in this, in this uh, other country. And Rahab says, we have heard about your God. And she uses the word Yahweh which tells us that she had some understanding of who the true God was, even though she lived in a pagan land. And uh, you'll remember, what did she do? She, she hid the spies from the officials so that they wouldn't find the spies. And so then, you know, the, the, the military looking for the spies coming in, they, you know, they leave. And Rahab says, you know, hey, p- please be kind to me as I've been kind to you so that when you invade the land, save my family. And you'll remember when Joshua and the Israeli armies invade the land, they go find Rahab and her family and they pull them aside so that they're not a part of the slaughter. Okay. And, uh, and we know, as we see here in James, that Rahab professed a real faith in Yahweh, even though she was, you know, she was from a pagan nation, right? She knew enough about Yahweh to believe that he was really the true God. And here she is manifesting herself in the good works of, you know, saving the spies from their death. Now, let me ask you this. This is the question of the morning. What is radical? What is unique about James just throwing down the example of Rahab in this context? What's that? Say it louder. She was not a Jew. Yeah. She's a Gentile. Remember James? James is Jewish, (laughs) the brother of Jesus, writing to who? The Jews. The Jews. Right? The 12 tribes dispersed abroad. So he's writing to Jewish Christians. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is at the brain, this is, this is in the infancy of Christianity, where, you know, most converts were Jewish. And James said he doesn't make a big deal about it, but he throws that example down to demonstrate that the offer of the gospel comes to Gentiles as well as Jewish people. Do you see that? 
that, that, that Gentile believers can have the same transformed life, the same evidence that they can be real, real believers too, uh, James would say. And, uh, you know, he doesn't beat the pulpit at that point, but it's just, it's a subtle way of reminding his audience that the gospel is not just a gospel for Jews only. It's a gospel for anyone who would put their faith in Christ alone and thus be saved. So really interesting that he would throw out that example there. Okay, so finally, final point here. Look at the end of the chapter here. Um, for Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So a person that professes faith but has no works is spiritually dead, just like a corpse that lacks the spirit of life. Sorry, my, my picture, I guess, moved up in front of the words there. Sorry about that. Okay, so that's the picture, right? Uh, uh, Real faith is a living faith. Real faith is a faith um, that manifests itself in works. And conversely, a faith that lacks works, that lacks transformation, that lacks any sort of evidence is a dead faith. The way that a corpse lacks real life because the spirit is no longer uh, animating that corpse. Okay. So, um, so, but before I let you go, I want to, I want to show you something here. And I know it's, it's really too early in the morning to be doing math. Uh, but j- just to manifest, j- just, to, just to really just rivet this in your mind. Okay. Uh, the Catholic view, the Mormon view goes like this. Faith plus works. Whoops. Let's make that a little bigger here. Faith plus works equals salvation. That's the Catholic or Mormon formula. Okay. <clears throat> There's a, a secular view, right? What's the secular formula? Works equals salvation, right? Why are you going to go to heaven? Because I'm a good person. Right? That's what a lot of people believe, right? I'm a good person. I do some good things. That brings salvation. Um, uh, and then, and then there's the uh, sort of what we call the easy believism. Is there an I in there? Believism? I don't know. Okay. So what does that say? That says faith equals salvation. You say, wait a minute. I think I believe that. Okay. Well, let's let's write the formula now for true Christianity. Let's write that formula now that we listen to James. What James is saying is faith equals salvation and good works. You see that? That's what he's arguing. It's still faith alone, but it's faith that leads to salvation, but it also produces good works. And that's why... Uh, he's saying true faith, true Christianity is going to manifest itself in a transformed life. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, we can reduce this to, to simple math equations here to, to demonstrate what we're trying to think about here. So we reject the idea that faith plus works is salvation. We reject the idea that works brings us salvation. Just being a good person gets you into heaven. We reject the thing that says, Mere profession of faith, mere mere faith alone leads to salvation if it doesn't demonstrate any sort of transformation in life. 
<clears throat> and so true Christianity means that faith, faith alone produces salvation, but it also produces good works or some sort of evidence that our faith is really real. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. All right. Any questions on that? Keith? Yes. Can you hear me? Yep. Um, so if you're talking to somebody who is doubting their faith and they said, well, what, what would be a good work? Yeah. It's, it's anything that where they're, they're showing some kind of response to a faithful thing. Like if they were reading scripture and, and trying to encourage themselves to um, not be fearful yeah. and they, they actually experienced peace yeah. through that, that would be an example of a good work or no. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the examples that James used is just saying, you know, when you see people in need, do you do something about it, right? You know, is, is your faith lead to you doing good things that God tells us to do, like visiting orphans and widows in their distress or like helping the helpless in that case? Um, we think of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five as, as evidences of that. Um, yeah. we, we think of uh, the many commands in the New Testament where the Bible tells Christians, you know, this is what you ought to be doing whether it's being kind to one another or practicing forgiveness or or um, bearing with one another's burdens, uh, returning good for uh, evil. You know, th- those are all uh, examples of good works. Now, now, a footnote on this, because James is not explicit, at least at this point, it's very easy to think that, oh, no, you know, are my works enough or are my works perfect enough? And, and, and that's where we get in the ditch. James is not saying you have to have perfect works or that we don't struggle with sin or anything like that. He's not saying that at all. He's not, he's not talking about the quality of our works or the perfection of our works or the lack of, you know, we're not, we're not, we're struggling with sin. No, no. What he's saying is all of those things are going to be imperfect. But what demonstrates the reality of true faith is the presence of some evidence. It's not the amount of evidence. It's not the perfection of evidence. It's the presence of some sort of godly, transformative work in your life. And we know this side of heaven, we struggle with that, right? We are a work in progress. But there is some change. There is some transformation. And and that, James wants to encourage us, is the evidence that our faith is really real. Okay? Okay. All right. Well, let me pray and uh, we'll, we'll dismiss here. Um, do you guys want me to leave the live stream on so you guys can hang out a little bit or, or the Zoom on? You guys want to talk to each other? Or are you still in your P- most of you are still in your PJs? I, I, I see those. Look at all those black boxes all over my screen. <laughs> Tell you what. So, OK, well, I'll pray. And then if you guys want to hang out for a little bit, I'll, I'll leave the, the Zoom room open for a little while. And then don't forget, uh, in about 45 minutes at 11 o'clock. Uh, just go to gracebible.net slash live, the, the live stream page, and uh, you'll watch the um, the live stream service that we have ready for you. So, uh, Father, thank you for time and your word, and, and thank you to just be able to unscramble what is often a difficult text. Uh, we're grateful uh, for the reality that, that we know our faith is real when it leads to transformation and good works in our life. We know that those works are are imperfect, that they're inconsistent, that we do still struggle with sin, but we thank you that that your spirit and that new heart and that new work that you do in our life of necessity will always manifest itself in some sort of transformation and good works, even as imperfect as those can be sometime. 
And thank you, Lord, that we can all look back to uh, times in our life and we can see that you really are working in our life, that our, our lives really are different because you're at work in our hearts. And what an encouragement that is, though, though we know we have a long way to go, uh, that we see real significant changes because the gospel has worked in our hearts. And we're so thankful for that. Lord, we pray too uh, for others in our community or maybe our family that are clinging to a professional loan and there is no works. There, there are no evidences. Uh, Father, might we wisely be able to take a text like this and help people to see that uh, that faith will manifest itself in transformation, that that, that your, your goal for us is that Christ would have first place in everything and that we would strive uh, to help others to have a living faith that is truly a faith that transforms. Uh, Lord, thanks for our morning and, and thanks that we could see one another in this way today. We, we look forward to worshiping uh, over the live stream and, and just uh, hearing Pastor Terry's message and, and rejoicing again in who you are and what you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.